What a wonderful song it is that we sang this morning. Little chorus, Purify My Heart. Purify my heart. It's my desire, Lord, that my heart be pure, my mind be pure, my life be an example of holiness. I desire it, Lord. That's what that song was all about. A desire to do His will. What is the will of God? We'll be looking at some of that today. In the latter part of chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, which is where we are going to be, the Apostle Paul begins to lay out for us a certain sense rather, of what it is to know the will of God. He had already said in chapter 4, verse 3, that it is God's will that we be sanctified, made holy. Again, that's what that song was talking about. I want to be pure. I want to be holy. I want to be righteous before my, my holy God. Sanctified means to be set apart. Just as the word holy is, it comes from the same root in the Hebrew and in the Greek. Holiness unto the Lord. What an amazing thing that is prescribed for us, the church. In these last days, we need to understand that God expects of us that we should indeed be holy, for He is holy. We should be righteous because He is righteous. We should be pure because He expects it of us. So now in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians in this first letter, he gives us some detail about how we can do that. He lays it out for us in a very interesting pattern of a series of what I would consider to be commands. And I'm reminded that as a church, we're not obligated to obey the law as were the Jews. They were given 613 commands in total, and one particular set of commands, known as the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, were given by God to Moses and outlined for us in Exodus chapter 20. Again, as we know, the Ten Commandments. Many of them are rather short. For instance, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not steal. Others of them are a bit more complex, like the last one. Thou shalt not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. In other words, it is a series of commands within one single command that he has given through Moses to the people of Israel. Now, we as a church, again, are not obligated to obey the Ten Commandments. I don't say that as, as meaning that we're not responsible to be wanting to obey those commands. We're just not obligated to command, to obey them in order to receive salvation. That's a completely different set of things that we have been given that result in our willingness to obey. We obey His commands because we love Him. They needed to obey His commands because He loved them and He knew that if they did not obey those commands, that they could not enter into a relationship with Him. We have a different covenant arrangement with God in the New Testament. It's the New Testament 
covenant that is available to all people, both Jew and Gentile, but it's still different. And yet we still have this sense of obligation to want to do God's will. And that's why we sing some, some songs like what we sang this morning, surrendering all to Him and wanting to do His will. And again, the question may come to our minds and often does in my mind, what is your will in this situation? What is your will for that particular situation, that particular need, that particular event that's coming up? What I need to know is, Lord, are you wanting me to do or say or act in such a way that would glorify your name? What is your will, Lord? And so God does indeed instruct us through his word, by his Apostle Paul, on this written page that we have before us, a sense of how it is that God expects for us to be willing and able to do His will. Again, He had already told us in chapter 4, verse 3, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. Well, that's easy. That's sensible. That's reasonable. That's an easy thing for most of us to deal with unless we're hooked on pornography, unless we're going to the Internet for things that we shouldn't be viewing, or the TV, or going to the movies that are displaying that kind of material. Oh, none of us would be doing that. None of us would be participating in such things. Well, if you're not participating in such things, good. If you are, turn. Turn to God, repent, confess. He's willing to forgive. We already have heard that very thing this morning. He does forgive everything, but you've got to ask. You've got to confess. You've got to believe. You've got to act. You've got to turn. When Jesus spoke to the woman who had been caught in adultery, he got all of the accusers out of here. How did he do it? By writing on the ground. And as each one of them saw what Jesus was writing, whatever that was, they all left one by one, apparently feeling some degree of shame. Until ultimately, all that was there were Jesus and the woman who had been accused of adultery. And he looks at her, and I know his eyes must have penetrated her heart. He said, woman, where are thine accusers? There are none, she said. And then he said, Neither do I condemn you. But then he said, Go and sin no more. Key passage of Scripture. Go and sin no more. So we know that we're not to be entering into a life of sin. We're not to embrace. We're not even to allow that sort of thing into our minds. When it happens, we should be going to the Lord quickly and asking God, please, Lord, cleanse my mind of these thoughts. The weapons of your warfare, my warfare, are not carnal, but they're mighty for the pulling down of strongholds, the Word of God says. That's an internal battle that goes on in everybody's person. No matter who we are, no matter how old we are, no matter where we are, that's just simply a fact because we are people whose nature is corrupt. But God has done something in our lives, has He not? He set us free from those things, has He not? His Word guarantees it. 
His word is true, is it not? When Moses gave the commandments to the people of Israel, it was the very word of God being spoken to them. And I believe that Paul is saying something of great importance to the church, and I believe also, just as much as it was for them, so it is for us here today with this particular portion that we're looking at this morning. The first 11 verses of this chapter 5 spoke of the soon return of Christ. The previous four chapters all ended with a reference to the return of Christ. The Lord wants us to be very, very aware of the fact that He is coming again for His bride. That's you and I. We are His bride. The church is going to be in glory as His wife established at the great feast that is going to take place in the heavenlies. The marriage supper of the Lamb, the book of Revelation talks about that so very clearly. We'll be there and we will be the bride that is presented at that marriage feast. But there's work to be done in our lives, isn't there? There's a process that's going on in our lives, isn't there? We've talked about sanctification often in our studies throughout the Word of God. And one of the things that I continue to emphasize is that that sanctification of the saint is a process. It's a daily living for Christ, one day at a time, and we are being made into His image. It's not that we have arrived yet, we have not, but there is a process, and that process of sanctification is something that we should be wanting to embrace on a daily basis. Be sanctified. Well, how do I do that? Paul tells us how. But it comes at a level of responsibility that we all must take upon ourselves. So, in light of what Christ is going to do, in light of what Christ has done, the church must do these things. Are you ready? These are the Ten Commandments of the New Testament. I'll give them to you one at a time. Verse 12, chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians. We urge you, brethren, that's us, not just the Thessalonian church, it's all Christians, brothers in the Lord and sisters, obviously, but Paul addresses them as familial relationship, brothers in Christ. And he encourages, not only encourages, but this is an urgent message. Again, read it. We urge you, brethren. That means pay attention to this. This is crucially important. The very first commandment is this. Recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. And to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. That's not just the pastor. That's everybody that is involved in church leadership. And I don't want to put a lot of emphasis on me. I hope you don't, don't think that that's the case. I want to put an emphasis on the fact that it's your responsibility to obey that command. It's mine also. We all are one in Christ. But there is a hierarchy that God has arranged for the church to function. And so there are pastors, teachers, there are elders, there are deacons, and deaconesses, 
there are people in leadership, whether it's a Sunday school ministry or some other ministry that is involving people in, in close contact with each other where one or more individual has some degree of authority to present the Word of God or to do something on behalf of God in that particular setting. The Word of God says we must recognize them who labor among you. Recognize them because they are responsible to admonish you. When things aren't being done properly, it is the responsibility of the elders, or the church leaders, to point those things out, to lovingly bring you to that place where you are willing to accept, oh, that's not something I should be doing. And then, in love, respond properly to that admonition. Esteem them very highly in love. You should love them because they love you, just as Christ loved the church. But do it because of their work's sake, he says. That's the first commandment. That's easy. It's not always happening in the church. I know of pastors, for instance, who felt like they were just simply hirelings because that's how the church looked at them. They hired them for a particular task. And they were watching every move the pastor made. That's not what this is all about. That's not love. That's terrible for a church to act in such a way as that with regard to those who are in church leadership. The pastors are responsible and are given a responsibility by God. And as such, we are held to a higher account than the person sitting in the pew. I accept that responsibility and I believe that it's a responsibility that you all should be aware of so that if I do or say or act in such a way as to be different than what the Word of God declares I should be or I should do, then I should be made aware of that. As would be the case with all of the elders, whether it's the worship leader or the treasurer or the church secretary or the Sunday school teacher, bring us to that place where we are able to recognize that there's something wrong and needs to be corrected. And may it be that each one of us who are in those places of authority would say, yes, you're right. That's commandment number one. Commandment number two is the latter part of verse 13, where it just simply says, be at peace among yourselves. Now, instead of focusing on the church leadership, he's focusing on each one of us individually with regard to our relationship with everybody else in the church. Be at peace with one another. Paul says elsewhere, as much as is possible in you, be at peace with one another. He recognizes the fact that it doesn't always work out that way. You can want to have peace with your neighbor, but sometimes your neighbor doesn't want to have peace with you. It has to be mutual in that way, in order for peace to be established. But knowing that, Paul says this is a commandment for the church. Make every effort to be at peace with one another. Body ministry to me is one of the most important aspects of who we are in Christ. What I mean by body ministry is each one of us has a responsibility toward the others 
within our body. We have a responsibility to get into each other's lives, if you will. We can't get under your skin, but we can get involved with you. What are your needs? What are your expectations? It's not about me, it's about you. I want to be others mindful, others centered. And that's what body ministry is all about. We can rejoice when our brothers and sisters are happy and enjoying the benefits of blessings that God brings our way. But we can also sorrow with those who are sorrowful. We need to be working with one another and knowing what it is that God wants us to do among the brothers and sisters in our fellowship. Be at peace among yourselves. That's only part of it. There's more, which brings us to the third commandment. He says in verse 14, Now we exhort you. Remember in verse 12 he said, We urge you. Well, here he's getting even more serious. He says, We exhort you. That word exhortation is sometimes used in a complimentary way, a consoler. But in other places, it is a needful stance that must be taken by church leadership to emphasize something that needs to be corrected. And so Paul is saying, we exhort you, brethren, warn those that are unruly. Well, we don't have any of that problem here in this church. Really, I'm, I'm pleased to say that. I believe that that is the case. I've seen places where that has not been the case. Sometimes there are those who are simply unruly saints of God. They shouldn't be, but it does happen. And it needs to be addressed. Whenever it is seen, you need to warn them. That's your responsibility, not mine. You, the body of Christ, need to be aware when somebody is stepping out of line and warn them. And then he says, comfort the faint-hearted. This is body ministry again. There are some who are just simply not excited about the way things are going in their life. And Paul says, it's our responsibility as a body of Christ to bring comfort to that one. To help that individual see that God is on their side. To see that there is hope for a future in spite of what was going on in their lives. Comfort that one. They're faint-hearted. Unfortunately, that is the case with many in the church today. Because they don't really have a handle on what does God's Word say when I'm going through difficult times. And instead, they turn inward and they say, Woe is me. You know, it's not uncommon. David had a lot of times when he was saying, Woe is me. Why are you downtrodden, O my soul, he would say. And then he would realize, Wait a minute, it's wrong for me to do that. He says, Trust in God. And that's the way people should come out of that feeling of woe and faint-heartedness by realizing God is on their side. Comfort them. They need that comfort. Uphold the weak. Hold them up. Physical weakness or spiritual weakness. Both are applied here. Comfort them and hold them up. Uphold the weak. Minister to that person who doesn't have the strength to carry on, who's going through a difficult time and feeling overly burdened about whatever it is that has come upon them. Comfort them, uphold them, and then, of course, be patient with all. 
Patience is a virtue. It comes after tribulation. In order to learn how to be patient, expect tribulation. And when you have tribulation and are able to get through it by the grace of God, you are developing in you the virtue of patience. It's a good thing. And we need to share that kind of level of patience that we have earned and learned about with others as well. Be patient with those who are not patient. Be patient with those who are weak, who aren't willing to change. Be patient with those who aren't coming along as quickly as you think they ought. Be patient with those who are still babes in Christ and you think that they ought to be eating meat instead of just the milk of the Word. Be patient. Be kind. Be gentle. Well, hey, those are the fruit of the Spirit, aren't they? Yes, they are. That was verse 14. It was the third commandment of the New Testament. The fourth is similar. In verse 15, he gives it to us. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone. I'll get back at you. You've hurt me and it's not going to ever happen again. Vengeance. Revenge. Getting even or better. Is that what God wants from any of us? Not according to this. He says, make sure you understand that none of us should render evil for evil. Jesus said it simply. If they strike you on the cheek, turn the other. Now that's not easy, is it? We want to get even, don't we? We want blood when they shed blood. At least we want to give them a little bit of a skin burn. We want to do something that hurts to get even for them having hurt us. Is that the way we should be? Not according to this. Well, how do we deal with such things? How do we accomplish these things? It's by His Spirit in us. Because if we didn't have His Spirit, we would be just unable to do any of these things. They are commandments. They are things that He expects of us. And we'll see momentarily that they are indeed God's will for us. The next three commandments are relatively brief. But they're so, so very important. The first of those three is found in verse 16. Rejoice always. Rejoice always. That doesn't say, be happy always. And we've said it before and I'll say it again. Happiness is not the same as joyfulness. The joy that God gives us is a joy of the Spirit that comes from having received His Holy Spirit in us. And because we have His Holy Spirit, we have the joy that is unspeakable and full of glory that the world cannot know. But it isn't necessarily the same as being emotionally happy. Because once in a while, things that come along in our lives make us very unhappy. But that should never reduce the joy that we have. Why do we have joy? Because He's coming again. Why do we have joy? Because He's forgiven us of our sins. Why do we have joy? Because He walks with us daily and gives us life. Why do we have joy? Because He will never leave us or forsake us. God is so good to us. 
How could we not be joyful knowing these things? Rejoice always. That's a command. It's not just a suggestion. Paul is saying these are things that we need to do. Secondly, verse 17 says, Pray without ceasing. Psalm 119. We've been reading it over the last few weeks and we've got a few more weeks to go before we finish that wonderful psalm. It's 176 verses long. That's why we're breaking it up into smaller sections. David wrote that in a very, very unique way. Each group of eight verses from the beginning to the end are the Hebrew alphabet. The first eight verses begin with the letter Aleph, which is the first letter in the Hebrew alphabet. The second eight all begin with the letter Bet, which is the second letter, and so forth, all the way through the 176 verses. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. He uses the first letter of every word in the verses for that section with that one letter beginning that verse. It was a teaching tool for children in the Jewish tradition. They would go to that verse or that chapter for that particular letter and they would teach their children, this begins with Aleph, this begins with Bez, this begins with Gimel, and so forth, all the way through the alphabet so they could learn. But there's something else important that I find amazing that David did in this particular 176 verses. All of them except for five verses, the first three and two others within the letter itself, all of them are a prayer to God. Because every one of them are saying, Your word, Lord, your precepts, your presence, your sacraments or laws. Your, your, your. In other words, David is speaking to God. And this 176 verses are a continuous prayer of David to his God. When Paul says, pray without ceasing, I don't think that Paul expects every one of us to pray 24-7. But what he's saying here I believe, is that simply our lives should be, every day, focusing on God's presence, God's love for us, asking Him for help in every situation that we have to deal with. Communicating with God doesn't mean that we close our eyes and bow our heads and get on our knees and pray for four hours straight. Can do that. That's great if you're able to. I don't think I could ever do that. I know some have. Some have laid prostrate on the ground, praying to their God for hours. I tend to fall asleep when I lay on the ground like that. Some of us stand, walk around. There's nothing wrong with that. You can pray standing up. You can pray sitting down. You can pray in any position, but pray. Whenever you've got opportunity, whenever the Lord puts something on your heart, talk to Him. It's just simply communicating with God. Lord, I'm so grateful for this beautiful day. One of the things that that Roger started out with was a simple prayer. Thank you for the flowers. Thank you for this beautiful spring weather. I like that. That's communicating your 
thankfulness to a God who's provided your every need. And He wants us to do that throughout the day. The more we do so, the more it pleases Him. But if we start the day with, Oh, Lord, this morning, instead of, Good morning, Lord. That's not as good, is it? And I know people who have started the day, Good Lord, this morning. Usually because they've got a hangover. And they know they've got to work. And they regret what they did that previous night. That should never be our condition, should it? Wake up in the morning refreshed and wake up in the morning saying, Lord, oh, thank you for this new day. Thank you that you've given me the opportunity to breathe a breath of air and awaken to this wonderful, wonderful day that you have made. Pray for the Lord's will to be done in your life. But pray continually. Pray without ceasing. That's a command. The next one, verse 18, in everything give thanks. And then he adds, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. In everything give thanks. Not for everything, but in everything. And again, we may be experiencing a great tribulation, a great difficulty. And we don't really want to go to the Lord and say, Oh, thank you for this terrible burden on my heart, Lord. But in that burden, we can thank God that He has promised us deliverance. In that very difficult moment, we can give thanks to the Lord, not for, but in that difficulty, because we know that perhaps He's teaching us something, and we want to be aware of what God is doing in our lives when such tribulations do take place, so that we can live for Him and be able to comfort those when we have been comforted by God who are going through the same sorts of things. Oh, it's so wonderful to be able to say, Yes, Lord, I thank You in this situation because I know that You are working something out in my life that I need to have worked out. So bring it on, Lord, but let me know. Let me know that You are there in the midst of this trial. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. But take note of the fact that going back to the previous two statements that Paul has made, Rejoice always, comma. Pray without ceasing, comma. In everything give thanks, semicolon. Now, punctuation wasn't in the original language, I know that. But what the translators have done is, they're basically saying, we're not to only recognize the fact that this is the will of God and everything give thanks, but also, this is the will of God Pray without ceasing. And also, this is the will of God. Rejoice always. This is the will of God concerning you and me. Again, back in chapter 4, verse 3, Paul said that it is the will of God that we be sanctified, made holy, set apart. Here, he's saying, these are the responsibilities that we have in order to bring that about in our lives. Rejoice evermore. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks. By the way, a little backstory. When I was preparing for the ministry, I was taking a course 
where I was required to memorize six consecutive verses in Scripture. And I thought, whoa, that is really not going to happen. Because I didn't really have a very good handle on memorization. And I still don't. But then I came across these verses. Hey, that's pretty short. Verse 16, rejoice evermore. I memorized one. And then I memorized the next one. Pray without ceasing. Then I memorized the next one. And actually, there was a song that we used to sing that we used to sing those verses. Rejoice evermore, for this is the will of God. And I remembered those verses, and I said, I've got it. Six verses in a row. I can do that. Do you know that, by the way, verse 16 is indeed the shortest verse in the Bible in the original language, the Greek language. Now, every one of us probably knows already that the very first time anybody would ask you, What's the shortest verse in the Bible? You might raise your hand and say, oh, I know, Jesus wept. In the English version, that is the shortest version or verse in the Bible. But this one, rejoice evermore, rejoice always, in the Greek language is shorter. So you can either work from the English language and say, Jesus wept is the shortest, or work from the Greek language and say, rejoice evermore is shortest. And you are right in both cases. So back to the story that we have before us. God's will for us. What is it? I suggest that we consider that all of these, not just the first, the last three that we mentioned, but all of them are God's will for us. Continuing on, verse 19 gives us the eighth commandment. Do not quench the spirit. If I've got a fire that's burning out of control, I'll take water, unless it's the wrong kind of fire, I know, but a fire from wood. And I'll pour this on the wood, and it extinguishes a flame, typically. It doesn't always work, especially with the fires that I have to deal with. But it's quenching the fire, isn't it? That's the idea that Paul is presenting here. Don't quench the Spirit. Don't Keep the Spirit of God from being able to do what He intends to do in your life and through your life and for your life. What what Paul is saying is, we have a power to prevent the Spirit of God from doing what He intends to do. Don't do it. Don't allow it. Don't quench the Spirit. In another place, Paul says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. The difference between those two is when we grieve the Holy Spirit, we're doing something we ought not to be doing. And it grieves Him. When we're quenching the Spirit, we're not letting the Spirit do something in us that He wants to do. Either way, Paul says, "Uh uh-uh, that's not for you. Get out of this habit of quenching the Holy Spirit. Get out of this habit of grieving the Holy Spirit. Live for Him. Let Him do His work in you, and you do what He wants you to do to please God the Lord your God. Quench not the Holy Spirit. The ninth command is, verse 20, do not despise prophecies. Well, there's a lot of differences of opinion with regard to this idea of prophesying. Is it for today? Yes, I believe it is. It's one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. 
And it's as much of an important gift as any of the other gifts that are mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, or 12 rather, or in Ephesians chapter 4, or elsewhere in Romans chapter 12. Every one of the gifts of the Spirit are important for the body of Christ in this present age. So, what does prophesying mean? It means simply telling forth God's Word. In a sense, when a pastor stands before you and proclaims the Word of God, he's prophesying from the Word with regard to what does the Word imply for us as followers of Jesus Christ. There's also another sense that oftentimes is thought of when you think of the word prophecy is foretelling some future event. And that can still happen today. I believe that with all my heart. So I don't think that there is a need for us to worry about whether or not prophesying still exists in the church. I believe it does. But what is important for us is to realize that Paul is saying here something of great consequence to the church. Don't despise the word of God going forth. There's a lot of people who just want to have their ears tickled. And they usually attend churches where that can happen. May it never be so in a place such as this. I'm not here to tickle your ears. I'm here to tell you God's truth as plainly as I'm able. Now, I don't do a good job necessarily. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that that's my goal. That's my hope. That's my desire. And it's by the Spirit of God that I believe it must be done in order for that to take place where the Word of God will go forth and not return to Him void. Despise not prophesying. But that's only a part of what we need to be doing as a body of Christ. The last commandment is actually a combination of the next couple of verses. My translation says, test all things. The old King James said, prove all things. Hold fast that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Those three things, coupled together, are what I believe can be considered the tenth and final commandment of the church today. Read them again carefully. Test all things or prove all things. Hold fast what is good. These three go together. That's why I coupled them as a final commandment. Abstain from every form of evil. What he's saying is, when you see something or hear something, it's to be tested against God's Word. And if it is good, then you hold fast to that. If it is evil, then you abstain from it. So all three are connected as one commandment. Prove all things. And make sure that what you're hearing, what you're allowing into your heart, into your soul, is from God. Test it against God's Word. Hold fast to it if it is indeed God's Word to you. But if it is not, abstain from allowing that to enter in and corrupt that which is holy. Now, we can take verse 22 and also apply it to every situation that we're dealing with in our everyday lives. For instance, from my perspective as a pastor, I need to take heart and take very seriously any kind of situation that I might find myself in 
that would be a compromising situation. So when I do counseling with any woman, I expect them to know right from the very beginning that I will not counsel with a woman by myself. My wife will always be with me. I will not enter into a vehicle to ride down the street with another woman if my wife isn't present. I will not go into a store and buy something that I know somebody might see and make an assumption about what it is that I'm buying. That would be abstaining from all appearance of evil. Even if it wasn't evil. It's the appearance of evil. I concern myself with those, and all of us should exactly do the same. Sandy oftentimes will go to a store with one particular purchase in mind. She likes to buy a syrup that's in a bottle that looks very, very much like a bottle of wine because the syrup is a red raspberry syrup that she uses to put in her tea. It tastes great. Raspberry tea, I love it. But when she buys it, because of its appearance, she kind of keeps it close to her body as she walks to the register because she doesn't want anybody to think she's buying a bottle of wine. No, she's not. Another time, long ago, I had kidney stones. I was in the hospital. Sandy needed to come to the hospital. She didn't have a license back then. So she sheepishly went across the street to our pastor friend and asked him if perhaps he could give her a ride to the hospital. Well, his wife wasn't home at the time. But he was willing to do that because he knew that there was a need. So Sandy got into the car with our pastor and as soon as she got into the car, she sunk down as low as she could in the seat so that people wouldn't be able to see her, avoiding all appearance of evil. They may sound extreme and somewhat comical, but that is just simply a good approach to how we all should be, abstain from every form of evil. So those are the commandments, ten commandments given by the Lord to all of us that we all should be willing to obey, not because If we don't obey, we're not going to get into heaven. But obey them because you love your Lord. Obey them because He has done such wonderful things for you that there is no reason why you should not want to do such things for Him. And in all of these things, we find great blessing. That's why Paul can end this chapter and this letter to the the Thessalonian church with verses 23 and following. He says in verse 23, Now, Knowing these things, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. What is God's will for you? He said it in chapter 4 again, verse 3. It says, it is God's will that we be sanctified. It tells us here in verse 23, it's God who does the sanctifying. That makes good sense, doesn't it? That means that you're not in this alone. You've got God on your side. How easy has He made it for you and for me? Very easy indeed. 
We're not under the obligation of the Old Testament laws that said you've got to do this, you have to do that, you can't do that, go here and not there. Those commands are for the Jews and they could not do what God had commanded. Now He's given us the freedom to worship Him, the freedom to live for Him, the liberty to do His will. And it should be a joy for us. It should be a pleasure for us to be able to do the things that God calls us to do. What a wonderful Savior we have. What a wonderful God we serve. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. It is God, the God of peace Himself, who sanctifies you, makes you holy, makes you set apart for His glory. Completely, not partially, completely, fully able to accomplish this in your life and mine. And then He says, And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless. Blameless? Yes, blameless. Without blemish, spotless. The sacrificial lamb was requiring a spotlessness. He alone was able to present himself as the true sacrifice, blameless and spotless. And what he's saying here is that he is able to make it so that you and I, we all can be blameless before him. It's his righteousness, not ours. Praise the Lord is not mine. He's preserved us. And He will continue to preserve us until that day. What day? The coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Are you ready? Are you waiting for the Lord's return? Again, this great letter, five chapters, and all five chapters have this promise. He's coming. He's coming again. Be ready. Serve Him with all your heart. Trust Him. Be holy for He is holy. Be pure. Be righteous. In His righteousness, not your own. At His coming. Then when He does come for us, we'll stand before Him and we will not be ashamed. And lastly, in verse 24, He says, He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. He's asking us, do these things to be holy, to be sanctified. It's His will. And then He says in these verses, Hey, by the way, it's God doing it for you. Isn't that grand? Doesn't that take the load off your shoulders? It does mine. Do you realize what is being said here? He has made you able by the power of His Holy Spirit to live for Him in such a way as to bring glory to Him and He finds that is acceptable to Him. He who called you You are called. You know that. You are sanctified because He's done it. Are you able to obey? You have the Spirit of God in you? And the answer is a resounding yes. Live it out, people. In these last days, present yourselves as living sacrifices unto a holy God and He will continue that process in your life. It's His will for you. It's His will for me to be sanctified. He will do it. I didn't even focus on this fact in verse 23 that He says, I pray that your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That in itself is a message, perhaps for another time. Unless you want to stay for another couple of hours, and I'm not really sure that that's 
necessarily what you're interested in doing. So I'll move on and perhaps we'll look at that. But what he's saying is we are a triune being. Body, soul, and spirit. This is the only place in the Word of God that we have all three connected together as one person. That's who we are if we're saved. I'll finish with the last verses because it's just basically a doxology. Blessed be the Lord for this. Paul says, brethren, pray for us. I invite your prayers and you should pray for one another also. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. A hug will do. A good handshake, perhaps. But make sure it's holy. I charge you by the word, or by the Lord, rather, that this epistle be read to all the holy brothers. That's you and me included, not just Thessalonica, but everywhere where this letter is read. We just finished reading it. It took us a while, but we read it. And there's a blessing in that. Read this letter. And the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ will be with you all. And to that I say, Amen.